You are listening to Messy in the Middle, the show here to help you navigate the messy blend that is life and business today. I'm your host, Haley Johnson, and my guests and I are here to dish out all the hot takes, big wins, and seriously messy moments that come with being an entrepreneur. So grab another cup of coffee, you know you want to, and let's get into it. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Messy in the Middle. Today, we are going to be talking about persuasion in sales psychology. So a few weeks ago, I sent out a newsletter centered around the idea of how you can write sales copy without being sleazy. And let's just say I got a little carried away with the research side of things. I managed to rein it in and not send a novel for a newsletter, but some of the content was too good to keep to myself. So today we are going to be talking all about persuasion, sales psychology, and why the heck we associate sales copy with being sleazy. Ready? Let's dive into it. We'll start with a little vocab lesson because I love definitions. HubSpot defines sales copy as text written to sway customers into taking specific actions and can be used to persuade readers to buy a product, sign up for a mailing list, download content, or take any further action that will help your business achieve its sales goals. So the definition is pretty broad. In the definition of sales copy, we talk about and start to think about persuasion, which I looked up the definition for persuasion and it does that annoying thing where it just uses the word to define the word. So I'm not going to bother with the definition. We'll talk about some synonyms. We've got convince, coerce, encourage, urge, entice, pressure, and tempt. So we can even see that before we attach any emotion or context to the idea of persuasion and sales copy, there's already a bit of a lean towards something slimy. I don't want to pressure anyone into doing anything, but by definition, it appears that this is what sales copy is. If we dig deeper into what makes sales copy persuasive, perhaps we can uncover what makes the idea of sales copy feel slimy and why. But first, let's make a pit stop at sales psychology, which is defined by business.com as a type of process that involves considering the psyche of your target market to sell your products and services. Essentially, instead of saying, you need this, you need this, you need this, and just hoping that your target market will buy, sales psychology uses persuasive elements to tap into the target market psyche and create an environment, interaction, or piece of copy that convinces, encourages, entices, pressures, or tempts, aka persuades, the target customer to buy the product or service. This is done by applying some or all of the six key principles of sales psychology, reciprocity, commitment and consistency, social proof, liking, authority, and scarcity. Before we dive into these principles, I want to be clear that I'm not saying any one of these principles is inherently wrong or sleazy or bad. But as we move through the meaning of each, I hope we can unpack some of the ethical and not so ethical ways we can see these principles being illustrated in the world around us and begin to develop an educated understanding of how and when each principle can be applied in our own sales strategies in a way that is supportive and not sleazy. I know I said it last, but let's start with probably the most polarizing of the principles, scarcity. We see scarcity applied all the time in marketing. 
from limited spots in a program to a countdown timer signaling the end of a sale or the closing of an enrollment period. Scarcity is similar to the economic principle of supply and demand. As supply increases, demand decreases. But as supply decreases, demand increases. Scarcity, whether real or artificial, represents a decrease in supply that encourages buyers to take action and make a purchase. But when is scarcity an ethical sales tactic? And when does it drift over into slimy territory? Of course, the answer is it depends because nuance is everything, especially when it comes to ethics. But I find that the easiest line to draw is the one between genuine and artificial or manufactured scarcity. Imagine walking into your favorite coffee shop and they tell you they only have one of your favorite pastry left. It's at a special price because it's the last one and they're never gonna order these pastries again. It's the last opportunity you'll have to buy that pastry at that shop. You can't pass that up. That is genuine scarcity. The quantity is limited, the time is confined, and once that pastry is gone, there won't be any more in its place. So you better decide if you want it and you better decide fast. But imagine you order that pastry, sit down in a corner of the coffee shop with your pastry and your latte, and you see the barista put another one in the case. The next person to walk up to the counter hears exactly what you did. It's the last one, it's a special price, they're never ordering them again. How do you feel about that? Probably a little uncomfortable, right? Maybe you were gonna buy a pastry anyway, but you only bought that one because of the deal. Or maybe you were trying to avoid pastries this morning, but you didn't wanna miss out on the last chance to have the favorite. Or maybe you were gonna buy that exact pastry anyway, no matter the price, but you just feel kind of weird knowing that the barista lied to you about it. This example may be a bit exaggerated and silly, but it illustrates what happens in our minds when we uncover false scarcity. There's an element of disappointment when we realize we made a decision that went against our initial plan for the day, or even one that went against our best interests. Of distrust when we find out that we were manipulated by someone we're supposed to trust, and confusion when we ask ourselves, did I really want that? Or was I just swept up in making a quick decision? Moving on from scarcity, which is like a lot to unpack, we can look at reciprocity and liking. We can look at reciprocity and liking together because they are often used in conjunction with one another. Liking is simply the idea that we are more likely to buy from someone we like. If we find them attractive, we think they're kind, they're funny. And reciprocity is the idea that once we give someone something, they are more likely to return the favor and give us something, a sale. One place we can see these two principles working together is in influencing. We follow influencers because we like them. They're attractive, live aspirational lifestyles, and provide us with some form of entertainment through their content. As a way to reciprocate the entertainment they provide to us, we purchase items they share using their affiliate links, support their branded content, and return the favor by helping our favorite influencers earn a living. If we didn't have the initial exchange of the influencer providing us with entertainment, we likely wouldn't be motivated to purchase the items they promote. In business, this can be applied as directly as purchasing merch from a band or creator that you like because they've provided you with entertainment or in a more direct way, Someone has a podcast that you like and get value from, so when they have a launch or promotion, you want to purchase and support them. 
or you get a free trial or consult call from a service provider or membership, and you're more likely to begin a paid subscription or sign up for a paid service because you've been given value and want to return the favor. Reciprocity can also tie into authority when it's used this way. But if we aren't careful, we can cross another line into sleaze territory with authority. By definition, authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And I don't know about you, but I don't exactly want my clients and students feeling like they need to obey me in order to be successful or obey me at all. Even if we look at establishing authority, like buying a one-way ticket to Slee City, we can still examine the goal of establishing authority and discover more supportive ways to reach that goal in our sales copy. The idea behind authority is that people are more likely to be convinced to purchase by someone they believe holds more knowledge or power than they do. The belief that someone holds more knowledge or power than you positions them as a credible source that can be trusted. So instead of focusing on establishing authority to dominate the decision-making process for our ideal buyers, let's focus on establishing credibility. How do we establish credibility? through education and our fifth element of sales psychology, social proof. Rather than focusing on content that establishes our authority and social proof that doubles down on that position, we can support our sales process by creating content that educates our audience in our areas of expertise, cites reliable sources to show that we've done our research, and is reinforced by social proof that confirms we know what we're talking about and are able to translate it successfully through education, service, or whatever else we provide. In this application, we establish authority by proving credibility and use social proof to help potential buyers feel confident in the decision they came to on their own accord, not because they felt we were an authority and they needed to obey us when we told them to purchase. Last but not least, we have commitment and consistency. This is the theory that people like to be consistent, so once we can get them to start or try something, it's easier to get them to continue. In in in-person sales, this can look like asking yes or no questions that have yes as the obvious answer. So when it comes time to close the sale, the prospect is used to saying yes and is more likely to say yes to the sale. This can manifest in plenty of ways in sales copy, but the first thing that always comes to mind for me is the section of a sales page that starts with, have you ever wanted to, dot, 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 and then lists things like have more freedom, make more money, love what you do every day, before leading to a buy button for a program that promises, you know, helping you along that path. When you break it all down, there are a ton of different ways to incorporate any combination of the six principles of sales psychology into your own sales copy, and there is no right or wrong or good or bad way to go about it. When you work on writing your next sales page, email campaign, or social media promo, I recommend asking yourself the following questions. First, how many principles of sales psychology am I applying to this promotion? Does this feel appropriate for the type of sale I am trying to make? Oftentimes when working with high ticket sales, we are tempted to layer on the persuasion because more money means more people are less likely to impulse buy. But it's important to think about the consequences of doing this. If I layer on the persuasion and someone feels compelled, convinced, tempted, persuaded, etc., to make a choice that isn't right for them in the long term, what will the consequences of that be? 
Will they ask for a refund? Will they overdraft their bank account? Will they need to borrow money from someone to make ends meet? If we start seeing or imagining these potentially serious negative consequences of someone making an impulse decision or being too persuaded by our sales psychology, maybe we pull back on some of the persuasion. On the flip side, a lower ticket offer may have fewer consequences if it winds up not being the right choice. So there are less downsides to using more persuasion in those cases. If you are selling a $27 offer and you want to layer on the social proof and have some scarcity before it becomes a different price or anything like that, for a lower ticket offer, there's not gonna be as many potential serious consequences of someone making that purchase and then realizing it wasn't the right decision for them. Question number two, if something feels sleazy, break it down. When you're writing your sales copy and you're thinking like, ooh, this is starting to get weird, think about what feels weird to you. Which principle is it most connected to? What about it feels sleazy? Is there a way that you can pivot the copy so it feels better? Or do you want to just not focus on that principle for this section? If something doesn't feel right to you, you are under no obligation to include it in your sales strategy, even if it's what the gurus or the sales professionals are telling you you need to do. Because at the end of the day, if you don't feel good selling, then it's not going to be a successful sale. And finally, is there something else about selling that feels icky to you? Maybe it's not the copy. Maybe you're worried about putting yourself out there, or maybe you aren't excited about actually delivering on the offer you're trying to sell. It's easy to blame sales tactics for not liking sales, but when we take the time to ensure we are implementing sales tactics that do feel good to us, it's equally as important to pull back and understand what, if anything else, isn't clicking. So if you've done the work, created the sales copy, and you should feel excited about it, like you have that in you and you want to be excited, but you're not looking forward to making a sale, maybe there's a problem somewhere else in your product or marketing or sales structure, like the offer doesn't work for you or something like that. There might be underlying reasons besides just the copy, and copies are really easy thing to blame. So that is the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed the accidental rabbit hole I went down when writing last week's email as much as I did. If you want to get more first looks at podcast episodes, I encourage you to sign up for my weekly-ish newsletter, mostly Thursdays. And if you're interested in giving your own sales copy a once-over, you can send me a DM over on Instagram at Haley E. Johnson, and I can tell you all about my new copy audit, The Gut Check. If you like this episode, I would appreciate if you would leave a rating and review. And if you want to talk more about anything from this or any other episode, head on over to Instagram and send me a DM because I would love to chat about it. Bye. Hey there. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Or more likely, thanks for leaving your phone just far enough away that you can't get to it in time to skip past this part. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and leave a review. And shout out to my guests for joining me, my dog for not barking, my editor Chrissy for doing her thing, and my friend Devin for letting me use his music. You can check out all of the links for the podcast, anything mentioned in today's episode, and the amazing people who helped me put on the show in the show notes. Bye!